0: really what it comes down to is how you respond to now and if men and women that are performing in high consequence environments aren't able to be where their feet are and adjust eloquently then there's consequences and so that's the mission here is to figure out how to train your inner world your mind so to speak and organize your inner life so that you can be exactly where your feet are in any environment in any situation in any circumstance If you can do that, the outcomes will take care of themselves.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Airplane Mode, our seventh episode of the season and our seventh conversation on confidence. Today we're talking with Dr. Michael Gervais. Dr. Gervais is a psychologist, With a background in sport and performance. And he works specifically with athletes who perform in high stakes or consequential environments. So, those consequences could be something as simple as winning a football game or winning the Super Bowl. He's been with the Seattle Seahawks for eight seasons and was with them when they won in 2014. And in here, he references his work with Russell Wilson, the quarterback of the Seahawks. And we recorded this podcast a little while ago. So, if you're wondering why we're talking about the NFL season in the present tense, even though it's now over, that's why. But he's also worked with Felix Baumgartner, who's probably best known for the Red Bull Stratos Project, in which he freedo from 130,000 feet with nothing but a parachute. And the working theory or philosophy behind Dr. Gervais' work is all about awareness of the present moment. And you hear a lot about mindfulness these days, and sometimes it can be sort of woo-woo or in the clouds. And I wanted to talk to Dr. Gervais because his work is very grounded in practicality and in science and has obviously shown some pretty remarkable results with the very successful and high-profile people he's worked with, especially with the work he was doing for the Red Bull Stratos project. The consequences for that were literally life and death. So I think that's a pretty strong testament to the power of Dr. Gervais' work. And he just talks about how more and more people in sports are coming around to the idea of having some sort of mindfulness or mental training component as part of their larger team development plan. And ultimately it makes sense the way you're going to perform best and the way that's going to give you the most confidence is all about how you respond to the present moment. So here he presents how grounding yourself in and coming back to now can actually help you overcome all sorts of things, be those nerves or the pressure you feel in a high stakes environment, be it negative self-talk, imposter syndrome. I think he makes a strong case. Hope you guys dig it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Michael Gervais. Dr. Michael Gervais. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. So we were just talking about this a little bit before we turned the mics on, but you were sort of characterizing for me the nature of your work. And uh, I wonder if you might do that again for the, the good people listening at home. <laughs> sure. yeah, so first of all,
0: I, I woke up with a frog in my throat. <laughs> How about that, huh? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the nature of my work um, classically trained as a psychologist with a specialization in sport and performance. and if there were a subspecialty, it would be in high stakes or consequential environments. And so what does that really mean? is that I'm fortunate enough to work with people that are some of the most extraordinary thinkers, and doers in the world and in some cases they're working and operating in operating environments where mistakes are costly and sometimes life sometimes limb sometimes life and limb of others and so why that is interesting to me at least is because to operate well in those environments requires a mastery of craft a mastery over the, your body and mastery of mind. And so it really is about a command of the inner world as it meets the external environments that are oftentimes incredibly intense. And how that stitches to the rest of us is that we're in an all time unprecedented stressful environment. Hmm. Like the speed and the pace of modern life is creating some real challenges to humanity. And those challenges really are related to aloneness. There's a high anxiety that's taking place. Chronic stress as it relates to under-recovery creates massive health issues for people. And there's a defracturing that's taking place right now for our health systems, for our religious institutions, for institutions in general. And people are feeling more alone and left to their own devices to figure this world out. And so we're seeing some really significant challenges to humanity right now. And what I love about the environments that I get to work in of high consequence is that they're teaching and informing the rest of us in many ways what it means to have a full command of one's inner life and to be able to apply it on command in rugged, hostile, and stressful environments. And the stressful environments are things that are available to all of us.
1: What are a few of the projects that were of higher consequence that you've worked on?
0: One of the ones that has had the most attention around it was called Red Bull Stratos. And it was a handful of years ago when Felix Baumgartner decided that, um, and Red Bull to be the first person to jump from somewhere around 130,000 feet. And this sounds like, when you think about 130,000 feet, like it's a stratosphere. So obviously they named it Stratos. Mm -hmm. But the thought of like, The risk involved in that and the consequences of not making it are severe. And some of the brightest minds in aerospace didn't have a sense like if he passed through a double sonic boom, Mm -hmm. if you will, to make it simple, is would his arms and his legs stay intact? Because no human has ever done that. There's some exaggeration maybe in that, you know, for the dramatic capture of that, the danger that ensued. But really, that's a real risk because no human has ever traveled through that type of experience unassisted. So those are some of the environments and the people that I'm fortunate enough to learn from.
1: So before we dive into all that, I want to reverse course slightly and set some table stakes. How would you define confidence first if we're going to have a conversation about confidence? I feel like it's important to get that out there.
0: Yeah, confidence, it's a really important skill and it's not something that we're explicitly taught. I don't know if you learned the mechanics of confidence in grade school or high school or college, like it's not explicitly taught. It's not complicated now, but confidence is essentially, I think I can do that thing over there. I think I'm pretty sure I can do that. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Confidence is not, I can confidence is like, that looks hard. I think I have the skills to match it. I'm pretty sure I can get that done. And so by definition, confidence comes from one place and one place only what you say to yourself. Mm. It's not built on past success. It's not built on the way that you stand. It's not built from a posture position. All of those things do influence confidence. Past success certainly has a great influence on it, but confidence essentially has to pass through the gate of what you say to yourself. Mm. And the good news about that is that ultimately, when we examine our inner life, we are responsible for what we say to ourselves and it's a trainable skill. So by default, confidence is trainable. And it's 100% under our own control.
1: So it's really interesting. So one of the things that first jumps out to me is that it is not built on past success. That sort of caught me off guard, and I think maybe would be surprising to other people to hear that, because that I feel like when you think of confidence, it's, look at all the cool shit I've done, <laughs> right? And that is going to give me... The confidence to do more of it going forward, but more it's more of an internal dialogue than, than a resume or a list of things that you've accomplished.
0: Yeah, you know, I can appreciate how that is so counterintuitive because people that have an incredible body of work and mm-hmm. I'm thinking right now of a multiple time gold medalist at the Olympics who when he walks on uh, on his court, he's still nervous. He totally. still has physiological sensations and he still has some nagging doubt if he can get it done. So it's not past success alone. It's not enough. It's knowing how to use and pull past success into, is a fancy psychological term, an appraisal, an appropriate appraisal of the demands that are about to happen. Hmm. And if you believe you can meet those demands based on your skills and your state of being,
1: you got it. And so how many of the people that you work with in the high consequence space, like- Felix Baumgartner who did the Stratos project and on projects like that, how many people struggle with confidence?
0: Oh, I think that that's a human thing. Okay. I think that most of us, uh, because we weren't explicitly taught how to build confidence and I'd like to get into the mechanics of it. I think mm-hmm. it's a really useful and not very complicated tool to, to work with. But I think most of us that want to do something extraordinary in life and we want to live you know, and be the best versions of ourselves. That means by definition, we're going to go into spaces and places where we're a bit over our skis. And when we're over our skis as a metaphor for being uncomfortable, right? Being a little out of control of things, that's when, you know, and it sounds so trite, that's where learning takes place, but that's also where capacity is being built. So the way that this kind of interlocking mechanism of growth works is that, We've got call it a comfort zone. It's not that quite simple, but call it comfort zone. And then it's a bit like a balloon, is that when we breathe into a balloon, it expands at the edges. And at the edges, it becomes a bit thinner. When you apply or map human performance or skills on that, is that we get to the edges, we are not skilled. Hmm. When we're in the center of the balloon, the center of our comfort zone, we're super skilled. We know we can sit at the couch and be fine. But when we get up on the edges, That's where we start to go, do I have what it takes? Because I'm not proficient in this space. Mm. So that can obviously, if you don't know, understand the mechanics of confidence, erode and chip away at it. Then when we retract that narrative that we have within ourselves, self-talk, that narrative, man, I don't know. Did anyone notice I was a mess? Maybe I can't. You know, that fear of other people's opinions is one of the great constrictors mm-hmm. of growth and potential.
1: That's interesting. It's calling to mind. I was watching a clip of you on Colin Coward's show, and you had this. He asked you an interesting question. I thought about the role that social media plays for today's athletes because they can hear all the external noise all the time. And I think you you said something about, I'm paraphrasing, but how social media usurps the mechanisms of confidence. And that's that's really interesting, right? Because it's like we then are orienting ourselves towards an external reward, other people's validation, and getting away from our self-talk. I just that just popped in my mind from <laughs> yeah. it's, it's it's super interesting. It's a mess right now. <laughs> you know for,
0: we don't we're not teaching kids and young people the mechanics of confidence, which uh, is self-talk. Mm-hmm. And there's two basic camps of self-talk. there's call it positive, productive self-talk. Mm-hmm. And then there's that more critical, biting, destructive, negative self-talk. Most athletes are not prepared to look at comments. Mm-hmm. Some of the most dynamic, healthy people on the planet are not, <laughs> reco- you know, capable yeah. of looking at trolling and looking at negative, critical, whatever. And to navigate that is really hard. And so there needs to be some sort of filter for that. And I think the healthiest response is to actually not engage mm-hmm. in the, the feeds, but to use social media to learn from what other thought leaders are sharing mm. and to promote things that you have found to be insightful, and important in your life. So it's the, it's the stuff that happens under the feed that has, I think, limited value, certainly for the person that is trying to share ideas.
1: Totally. It's, it's interesting. It is interesting when, cause sometimes athletes do interact with the trolls. And it's always sort of amazing as speaking myself as like sort of a, just a mere civilian, I mm-hmm. guess I would say, you know, when you see someone like Kevin Durant respond to trolls, it's like, why are you like, you're Kevin Durant, man, you're you arguing with the best basketball player on planet earth. Like, why do you care? But it's just, it must just be such a human thing. It just feels unnatural to have someone chirp at you and not be able to defend yourself.
0: But what ends up happening is that at a very core mechanism for humans, we want to belong. It's biological to belong. And one of the threats to humanity for our survival is when we're long ago kicked out of the tribe. So what is the current modern day tribe is, you know, rejection, not being able to, you know, find value in the circles of business or sport or whatever that we're contributing. And so long ago when we couldn't perform well and we're kicked out of the tribe, it's because we didn't hunt well or didn't gather well or didn't play well together. And that certainly meant survival costs. Mm -hmm. If you had to go fend for yourself and your smaller family by yourself, it's not good. It's likely didn't work. Yeah. So that same biological structures we think are present with us today. So how do we get kicked out of the tribe in modern times?
1: Don't play defense or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. That's exactly right. Yeah. When
0: you're critiqued for what you say or what you do, it's not good enough. You get kicked out of the tribe. Exactly.
1: What are some of the, when it comes to sort of self-talk And you were delineating between the two types of self-talk, the destructive one or the... uh, Productive. Productive. Yeah. What are some of the exercises you have, clients you've worked with, use to sort of quiet the destructive side and enhance the productive side? Or I don't even know if that's an approach you take, but I'm just curious, what are some of the exercises or work you do to to help with that?
0: Yeah, it's not complicated, right? It it begins with awareness first. And so first order business with anything that has to do with the psychology of excellence or the psychology of growth is... Becoming aware of your inner experience and then having the tools and skills to navigate it, you know, to make it better, if you will. So, with awareness, one of the great practices to increase awareness is mindfulness. You know, and mindfulness training—it's been around twenty-six hundred years. Mm-hmm. Modern science is saying, "Hey, <laughs> we should pay attention. It's really doing some good stuff here. <laughs> we brain chemistry, brain structure, behavioral, psychological changes that are happening for people that are meditating and doing mindfulness. It's extraordinary." And so mindfulness has two basic core tenets. One is awareness, Mm -hmm. and the second is wisdom. And the linking between the two is the present moment and insight. So let me deconstruct that for just a minute. Awareness of what as the first pillar? Awareness of our thoughts, awareness of our emotions, awareness of our body sensations, and awareness of the unfolding environment around us. If we had an increase in awareness of those four things, and we stop there, we would butcher the ancient beauty, you know, the tradition uh, that's presented, but we would be a better performer. We'd be a better doer, right? We become more aware and we could adjust more eloquently to when our thoughts are off, when our emotions are not conducive to the, the task at hand or to the condition. And if we can be better connected to the environment, we can adjust more eloquently. You mm. can see that from a sport lens yes, for sure. Totally. And But we'd fall far short from the deeper part of mindfulness, which is wisdom. And so how does that take place? Well, you can't be in a conversation with somebody that's a wise man or woman and become wise. You can't read a book of wisdom and become wise. You have to earn it. And the way that you earn it is through spending increased frequency of time in the present moment. Now, the cool thing about the present moment is when you stitch moment one with moment two, with moment three, fill it, fill in the blanks there, that that's where high performance is expressed. And it's also where wisdom is revealed through insight. Hmm. So the the game inside the game here is to increase the frequency of being in the present moment. Hmm. One of the things that pulls us out of the present moment is critique, is judgment, is this isn't right. This isn't good enough. I'm not right. I'm not good enough. I can't. All of that negative, constricting, destructive type of thinking pulls us from being into this moment, whatever this moment is. And so that's kind of the game inside the game, Mm. right? Is becoming aware of that inner experience and then having the tools to navigate. Hmm. okay so that's awareness one the skill is to go from negative mind or critical mind over to productive positive but this doesn't this doesn't mean that we make stuff up this doesn't mean that we say oh you know what the boat is burning and you know i'm just going to stay in the burning boat and actually i think we're all going to be okay let's just stay here that's what is that like that's this airy fairy type of pop psych bs Mm -hmm. thing that it like makes my hair stand up like it's so wrong Mm -hmm. this idea of naive optimism like we've got to earn the right to be optimistic by finding the things that can be good Hmm. and building a framework around that as opposed to this naive hey just be positive hey everything's good you can get there from you know saying something to yourself about yourself that builds you like you know what i put in the work let's go i love being tried try me You know, that type of chip or confidence building mechanisms works. The least effective is, but still on that positive side, is focusing on something technical about the environment. It's not great, but it will suck you out of, Hmm. you know, oh my God, that's swirling. I don't know if I have a takes. What are they thinking? Stakes are too high. I should not. I I coulda. I shoulda. I coulda. You know, that whole swirl, that negative swirl.
1: So I'm thinking of what you would say to someone who say there's a field goal kicker who has missed, who just, you know, I'm not, I'm not thinking of anyone specific, but say they've had, you know, seven or eight great years. And then the ninth year, they just, they just can't hit like, and now they, they've missed three or four important field goals, choked a couple times. They come into your office and they say, yeah. well, I don't know what to do. Every time I'm going to, to kick field goal, I just, I hear this, voice in the back of my head right like what would you do in that in that scenario
0: so but the word choking let's just use that for a moment it really what it is conjuring up the image is like we we grab our neck right but really what's happening is we're choking off access to our craft Uh okay so that's a mental psychological construct where we have a thinking pattern that is restricting the access to the movement patterns that are well-grooved. Okay, so let's use your scenario now. And let's say someone comes in and say, I'm, you know, I'm choking. And so what they're basically saying is that I'm really far away from what it feels like to be my best. Mm-hmm. There's only three things we can train as humans. We can train our body, our craft, and our mind. So in that frame, in that conversation, we first need to rule out like, are you able to do it when mm-hmm. there's not pressure? Mm-hmm. So are you striking the ball well in practice? Yeah, yeah I'm mm-hmm. nailing them. Okay then it's probably something to do with, you know, the mental part of the game. If the athlete were to say, you know, I'm actually struggling in practice too, like there's something happening there. Well, maybe it's a technical thing. Maybe it's a fatigue thing, you know, because kickers, as an example here, they're using a repetitive, I, I don't think people realize that very small muscle movements are taking place in the hip and those are done repeatedly. And so there's an easy thing to overtrain those muscles. And it's an easy joke to say, are you kidding me? They only do one thing. Yeah. Well, try to do one thing excellent. Like just one small thing <laughs> excellent, you yeah. know. It requires fine motor skills, you know, at a whole different level. So anyways, we would look, is it technical? Is it physical? If not, huh. maybe it's psychological. If it is psychological, great. What are the thoughts that are getting in your way? And usually it's about the moment is big. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like I have the skills, so I feel small. I don't have the skills to manage the moment. So we would deconstruct: like, is a moment big? And we take a look at that. And I think ESPN, Fox Sports, whatever it is, I'm agnostic to brand there. I think that the hype machines have this wrong. Big game, defining moment. There's there's really no such thing as a, a in my mind a big thing. And yeah, I, I hear, I see yeah. you, and I hear yeah, you yeah, yeah, in yeah. that. You've heard it your whole life. The Super Bowl is a big game. The Olympics, the biggest game ever. And I can create a narrative that that's true. I can create that narrative. But when I strip it down, it's no different other than other people are watching. More people are watching the Super Bowl than the playoff game, than preseason. The rules are the same. The balls are the same. The consequences are the same. You know, one team wins, one team loses, and you can poke some holes in here if if you wanted. But the truth is the conditions are the same. The only person that changes the stakes is the person performing. And this goes back again, if we're going to listen to the hype machine of media, they need to make it big because they need eyeballs. That's their business. As an athlete, most of us, we have to make an informed decision early on. Let's use Super Bowl. Let's stay on that. If you think it's like every other game, let's stay committed to that philosophy. My experience is that whether it's the Olympics, Super Bowl, whatever, a game is a game.
1: Hmm.
0: Consequence is the same. Do you have the ability to be where your feet are? Hmm. And are you going to change that because people are watching?
1: I hear what you're saying. <laughs> but and I you, totally disagree. <laughs> no, I don't totally disagree, but I want to push back a little bit on because the Super Bowl is objectively, the outcome of the Super Bowl is objectively a bigger deal than the outcome of a preseason game. Right do you, you disagree? yeah, I do
0: like I, I do agree. it goes, I want to hear your thought though
1: well, it just if you win the Super Bowl, you are, I mean, I can understand in sort of the timeline of eternity, winning the Super Bowl does not amount to much, I guess
0: it's cool. it's it, cool it's I mean, but I was fortunate enough to be part of a team that, that did it, and it's it's wonderful, yeah, and I learned a lot. And I was also fortunate enough to be part of a team that lost same team in dramatic fashion. And I learned a lot. Yeah. And so it begs a question, like, what are we doing? (laughs) You know, like, not in this conversation, I'm enjoying it. But like, what are we doing as humans? Are we collecting trophies? You know, Are are we collecting wins? Are we looking for recognition alone? More money, bigger car, bigger watch. I don't think that that's really what we want. We all live in the same planet. We have the same basic wants and hopes for our children. You know, we breathe the same air. Like that idea that there's something deeper in us that um, is a deeper calling is far greater. And I'll tell you, you know, like in the most materialistic sense, yeah, it's the last game of the season yeah. and the winner gets a trophy. Well, that that happened in fourth grade too. That happened in eighth grade too. I mean, come on. Like I'm not, I don't want to diminish the industry that I'm in, it's exciting. It's electric. It's wonderful. It's challenging. It's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. But there's something bigger at play. And we get to that place, there's greater freedom to be able to do the thing that you love in a more artistic way rather than, you know, paint by numbers.
1: I still think there's this, there are societal <laughs> benefits to winning that last game of the season. And, yeah, and material you, benefits. Yeah, Both. Yeah, That, that is correct. Yeah. Both. So in the moment I just feel like it's hard to not feel that pressure
0: i agree i think that you're right because there are real changes that happen after winning Mm -hmm. you know and um, it changes people's family legacy in many ways and the pressure comes from what if i can't do my job what if i can't bring it well then what is causing that pressure the fact that maybe i'm not going to get the thing that i don't have now but how about my life now
1: What about when the the consequence isn't losing the Super Bowl, but in the case of the Stratos project, potentially losing one's life? That's right.
0: Yeah, and I hope that maybe this could strengthen the position I want to make, is that really what it comes down to is how you respond to now. And if Felix or other men and women that are performing in high-consequence environments aren't able to be where their feet are and adjust eloquently then there's consequences. And so that's the mission here is to figure out how to train your inner world, your mind, so to speak, and organize your inner life so that you can be exactly where your feet are in any environment, in any situation, in any circumstance. If you can do that, the outcomes will take care of themselves. Like our brain is this most powerful, most amazing, complicated, three-point pounds of tissue that sits in our skull. Our mind is the software that's running it. Who programmed the mind? <laughs> who programmed your mind? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, who programmed my mind? Yeah. And so we did, our parents did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Social media's programming. Institutions that are, you know, falling apart had a big play in it. And so we are responsible for our own programming and it's running the most powerful computer that we can even conceptualize. But the self-critique and anxious frustration software that runs defrags that hardware and it doesn't allow our mind and brain and body to be on time in the present moment, to hit a baseball, to catch a football, to fill in the blanks, whatever challenges at hand, to have an eloquent conversation with a loved one, to respond to the demands of a boardroom. We need to be fully present, not defragged. And if we're practicing defrag type of approaches then we get compromised performance results whether it's the Super Bowl or whether it's preseason
1: yeah or a job interview or anything else that has yeah. stakes to it yeah. what is one exercise that people could do today to start working on cultivating that awareness of mind
0: okay so i would i would go to kind of the ancient traditions and modern science of mindfulness i would start there mm-hmm. and i would get to know your mind right and so once you become aware of thought one, how it impacts thought two, and how thought one and two take you to thought three and the emotions that encapsulate that, then you can start to play. Mm -hmm. But without awareness, it's really hard to do it. Now, mindfulness is not for everybody. Mm -hmm. So another strategy is to write, like externalize your hard drive, if you will, and journal and or write what it's like to be inside your mind. And so just keep a running log, like things you say to yourself that work, things that you say to yourself that don't work. For some people in your audience, they hear that and they're like, I don't got that kind of time. Yeah. And that sounds like a third grade exercise. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I don't do it that way. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but that but some people love that concrete nature to it.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and here's a third way that's a bit more practical is you can think about this like an epic thought list. Imagine a white piece of paper with three columns. The first column would be, what are those thoughts that you're done with? Like those destructive, critical judgmental, whatever type of thoughts, just write them down and like really look at them and make a decision that you're done with them. They don't serve you anymore. With the second column, write down the productive types of thoughts, the thoughts that fire you up, mm-hmm. that they might not make any sense to anyone else and they might sound really cheesy to somebody else, but they're thoughts that work for you. Now, here's the thing for every one productive, epic thought that you have, you need to back it up with three things. And this is the third column. In that third column call a back it up column. Write down three reasons that give you the right to say that thing. That means you need some real experiences in your life that you're gonna anchor to that give you the right to say that epic thing. Now we've got something that, you know, it's it's a bit hardened. It's real. You've externalized it, you've looked at it, you've done some cognitive intellectual work that is based in and rooted in real history. So those three columns, I think will will really do justice for somebody.
1: And now it sounds like you're speaking about this as like a general exercise you could do, but I assume you could also tailor it to, like, say you keep getting nervous public speaking. Could you tailor this exercise to something specific like that?
0: Okay, good question. Because nervousness implies usually like a body is switching on. Like like there's an activation level where there's a sweat, there's a a, a tremor, there's a breathing rate, a heart beating So part of that work is... To understand that thoughts and emotions and our body, it's like this bang, bang, bang experience. They work so closely Mm -hmm. together. Thoughts do impact emotions Mm -hmm. and our body sensations. Body sensations also impact thoughts. You know, it's this really cool loop. If you go way upstream, though, and you get your thoughts right, you'll have better physiological responses, better emotional responses. So this work is to go upstream to do that. But let's say that you're continually nervous. It might be as simple as a reframe, which is like, no, 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 hold on. My body's switching on. I want it to switch on. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's simple, as simple as that. And then if you can put your body on a scale of one to 10, 10 is like, I just threw up on my mouth. I'm so nervous. Right. And a one is like, you know, like I'm way too chill for this thing that I need to go do. And a five is a sweet spot. Uh-huh. Okay. And what you're looking for is like a four, five, six type of activation level. Well, if you're aware of your body on that scale because you're training awareness of your body there back to kind of step one, right? And you you see, you see feel your body switch on to like a seven, just a little too much juice. Mm-hmm. Well, you need some juice. So love that your body switched on. How about it? Now this is self-talk. You know what? I'm gonna bring her down a little bit. Thank you, body. Appreciate you for firing <laughs> up. I'm still eating breakfast. My presentation's at two. Let's chill out a little bit. So that's a self-talk nature. And then what do you do? You gotta breathe. Uh-huh. So you need another skill, uh-huh. right? How many breaths do you need? Depends on how skilled you are, how much mm-hmm. you practice breathing. Mm-hmm. You know, For some people, it's like three breaths. For some people, they need 12 or no. 24, whatever. And so therein lies why awareness is really important as totally. well.
1: Two things in there. One is the I just heard on another podcast, um, I hope don't mess up her name. I think her name is Lisa Feldman Barrett. She's a psychologist. And she was on a podcast and she was talking about how she heard her young daughter's karate teacher before their black belt test, say to the kids, get your butterflies flying in formation. Yeah, and it's an old, that. It's an that old idea. thought.
0: It's really good, love isn't that. it? Yeah.
1: I mean, I'd never heard that before, but it's just like, oh, that's, you're talking about your body switching on. It's just, okay, let's reframe this as determination or preparation to succeed as opposed to that's anxiety, that's anxiety right. or nervousness.
0: Yeah. Now, how like, do you do that?
1: It, there we go. I don't know. Yeah. It, I would love It's a it. good I mean, thought. Yeah.
0: Right? Those are good words. Yes. And what that's doing is recognizing for that child or an adult <laughs> yeah. is that, oh, yeah, butterflies are normal. Totally. Okay. So when you feel butterflies and you say, oh, God, I'm nervous. Well, now you've just made it anxiety. You've made it nervousness. Mm-hmm. When I feel butterflies, I go, yeah, let's go. Exactly. Body's switching on. Love
1: that. Yeah. So
0: it's that simple. Then now I'm in control. Do I want it on? Do I want it at this activation level now? hmm. Well, let's say I'm walking on stage and I'm at like a seven. I'm fine. I'll be fine. It's just not optimized. You still think clearly at a seven. Mm-hmm. It's a little rushed maybe. It just feels a little scratchy, unsettled, but you're fine. Mm-hmm. You know. So, But how do you bring it down? Well, it's a combination of breathing and reminding yourself of the work that you've done. That's self-talk. Totally. You know? So getting your butterflies to fly in formation, how do you do it? You got to say, I love this. That's self-talk, right? Like, this is what I do. I'm ready. That's self-talk. It sounds so simple, but it really, you know, we're talking about the invisible
1: though. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And that's, that's the difficult thing in these conversations. Cause I think a lot of people will hear it and just be like, well, that's bullshit. (laughs) And you know, and it's like, but it, it goes back to a thing you said not too long ago, about a lot of people will hear this and they'll be like, I don't have time for that, or that's a third grade exercise. But I feel like that goes back to the second point I wanted to make, which is when you were talking about how many breaths it takes to sort of bring yourself back from a seven to a five or whatever. It's an ongoing practice, right? And so if you think, I don't have the time for this, that's going to keep you from doing the five to 10 minutes a day that could keep you from having your back against the wall in a situation where you need to get from a seven to a five, but you haven't done... work. Right. How about it? And that's usually how I respond to people when they're like, I just don't have time. And I'm like, yeah, but when you need it, you're not going to have the time to not have done it before. You know, So
0: so that's where it pays dividends. And, And again, let's take some wisdom from the world of high performance. Let's use sport in this example. I have not met a world class athlete or coach that doesn't nod their head up and down that the mental part of the game is important. Mm-hmm. it's critical <laughs> the higher you go in the performance domains the more critical it becomes because everybody's got physical talent mm-hmm. everyone technically is on point point. and so those that can handle stress those that can dissolve pressure by seeing that the championships are just another game that this moment is the moment only moment I have I'm going to maximize it whether anyone's watching or not practice or game time Right. those individuals train their mind Mostly, mm. not all. Some people are freaks. And, you know, some people can also eat pizza and hamburgers and jump 42 inches. Mm-hmm. You know, they're freaks. Mm-hmm. Some people are, are psychological, you know, freaks. Most are not on the world stage. They're paying attention to conditioning their mind to be able to deal with high stress environments. Why would we not want to learn from them? Mm-hmm. They're doing it. I, I'm telling you, I've met a coach yet that doesn't say the mental part of the game is important. Yeah. Let's go. Matter of fact, most of the conversations, you know, after tactics and strategy are about like, you know, recovery and the psychological skills to be able to adjust to stress.
1: How much has that changed in recent years, though? Because I feel like when I've read things about when you first started with the Seahawks, when did you first start with the Seahawks?
0: This is my eighth season. Eighth season. Yeah.
1: But I remember reading some quotes from players that was just like, you know, this isn't, I think maybe it was Jimmy Graham or something where he was saying, you know, this isn't what we're usually taught in football to be aware of the moment or to be mindful. It's like. No, you just go out there and you be tough and you play through it and that's how you win. And I imagine some of these strategies are somewhat counterintuitive to what a lot of players have come up. I'm thinking specifically in football, systems they've come up in, they probably aren't thinking – Let me write down negative self-talk so I can banish it from my, you know, they're probably (laughs) like the self-talk, this negative self-talk is what gets me out there and wants me to rip the other guy's head off or something, right? So have have you seen a change in that attitude in recent years? Or or I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit.
0: Yeah, it's a good thought is that I don't think that um, it's all that new. Mm -hmm. It's just that the science is getting better and people are talking about it more. And if we pull back and we look at sport over the last, let's say, 60 years, 60 years ago, head coaches did everything. They were the nutritionist, They were the psychologist. They were the head coach. They were the tactical and technical. They did everything, Mm -hmm. right? And then the avant-garde coaches said, hey, you know what? There's this new discipline coming on board called strength and conditioning. Maybe we can be bigger, faster, stronger in the fourth quarters. Mm -hmm. So it brought them on. You know what? They were, it worked. So there was this outsourcing of intelligence around how to train the body. And then what we needed after that came on athletic training. People that need to repair these bigger, faster, stronger bodies at a faster clip for a competitive advantage. Then nutrition came on the scene. Hmm. So now we've got head coaches that are bringing on strength coaches, ATCs, and nutritionists. Well, where else are we going to go? Mm-hmm. So that's what's happened now is the avant-garde coaches are saying, hey, we got this really exciting discipline that's maturing, sports psychology. Let's start training training. And having that be part of a competitive advantage because, like I said, we're nodding our heads up and down that the mind is important. So, And I think we're just scratching the surface at this point.
1: Hmm. Two things that I want to ask you about. One is how much of this has to do with expectation? Because like, I'm thinking personally here. I used to be a, a very good soccer goalkeeper until I knew I was a good soccer goalkeeper. When I was a freshman, I was just carefree, and I thought goalie was easy because how I framed the situation in my head was, like, I'm not supposed to stop. Like, the goal is huge. The ball is small. I'm fairly small. If I let it in, like, it's not really my fault. (laughs) The the, the cards are stacked against me (laughs) here. Cool. It was great because I just had fun. and It was (laughs) playful, and I played great. And then the varsity coach was like, you're pretty good. You know, you should come up with us for states. And from that point on, I was a fucking head case because I'm like, oh, shit, maybe I'm pretty good at this thing. And now instead of a ball comes in the box and I'm out there running it down and being like, this is great, I get to slide and be a kid and grab the ball. I'm now like, what if what if I hesitated a minute too late? And now, uh, shit, I, I don't know, should I come out on this corner kick or not? And this has become a lot about me, but I'm just curious what role expectation plays in this sort of like in having confidence because I oh, yeah. I didn't ha- I had plenty of confidence when I didn't know I was good. And the minute I knew I was good, I was like, fuck, I gotta stay good. And I'm thinking of someone now like Russell Wilson is having an unbelievable season, MVP type season. As soon as he starts hearing, and I'm not comparing my mental toughness with Russell's, but I'm saying he's gonna hear the noise of this is an MVP type season for Russell Wilson, right? What is the key? First of all, what role does expectation play? And then two, What is the key there to not letting that outside noise Mm -hmm. influence
0: you? Mm -hmm. It's great. It's so practical and tangible, you know, what you're talking about. So I would imagine, I would hope actually that most people have felt what you're describing. And it's so prevalent. There's a name for it. Imposter syndrome. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as a folklore and incoming professors at Stanford are highly encouraged to take a course for themselves, on imposter syndrome because they, <laughs> they're, they're at this beautiful institution, world-class institution. They walk down the hallway and there's Nobel peace prize and uh-huh, you know, whatever. Totally. Film. And so you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> <Are> <laughs> Who am I tricked? you are going to find <laughs> out, yeah. you know, that I just had a really great interview. And so imposter syndrome is real and you're calling it expectations. They're overlapping with each other. It's basically the construct that people has saw something in me and they're expecting that I can do that all the time. And, That is a framework. That's a psychological framework that is built on avoiding failure, fear of failure, Mm. as opposed to a psychological framework that's built on approaching success, which is what you had as a young kid, (laughs) right? Like, hey, I'm going to figure this out. Great. It's stacked against me. I'm going to do my best. Yeah. How about it? Yeah. Well, that's not, uh, what a great approach in life. Like, hey, life's really freaking pretty hard. I'm going to do my best. Well, how am I going to do my best? Well, I'm going to work on having good feet. Good hands. I'm gonna train. I'm gonna eat well. I'm gonna have fun. You know, like fill that in for the the business corollary or the relationship corollary. And so, how do we do it? Um, we recognize that what we say to ourselves <laughs> matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So back to step one, like yeah. increase in awareness of the narrative that is either constricting you or creating freedom. And essentially, it's one of those two: constriction or freedom. And the more space we have, the more freedom we have to like play. Mm -hmm, And -hmm. then usually the better things go in all facets of life. Mm -hmm.
1: And then the other thing other than expectation is like how much of this is is about your identity, right? Like the minute I started thinking I am a good goalkeeper. Now, if I perform poorly, it's not just a poor performance. It is, it's sort of antithetical to the identity I've created. Right. And so then that feels so much more painful because it's like, it's not just that I had a bad game. It's that. I am bad, yeah, right? Yeah, there you
0: go. You're right on it because this is something that happens for young talents and it can happen for people that are older as well. But when people are talented at something at a young age is what we're supposed to do at the ages of 12 to 18 is figure out who we are. It's actually marked by identity confusion, role confusion or identity. And so we're supposed to try, am I punk? Am I rock and roll? Mm-hmm. Am I R&B? Like, well, who am I? Yeah. You try a bunch of things on, right? And when you latch on to one thing, I am an athlete at the age of 14, 12, whatever it is, because your community talks to you about your thing that you're special at and you'll foreclose on the other identities Mm -hmm. that you haven't tried out yet. So when somebody goes onto their stage and they have foreclosed on all other identities, I am an athlete and I'm going out to do my thing. And if I don't do my thing well, I don't matter. Okay, so if that's the Mm -hmm. framework, then what happens is the brain lights up the fight, flight, freeze, submit mechanisms. We don't talk about the freeze and submit Mm -hmm, often mm -hmm. enough, but those those are real things that happen. So let's just shorthand it. And it lights up that sympathetic response system, that fight and flight response system. And from that, the brain goes, oh, I know what to do. This is survival. So it chokes us down. Mm. It tightens us up. It creates a physiological response to run from a saber tooth or the warring tribe, but really what we need to do is fricking catch a ball. So, <laughs> okay, there's the compromise. And it's all built on that framework, I am fill in the blank. Uh-huh. When you do the deep work, you're far more than the role that you inhabit, mm-hmm. far deeper than the skin and the bones that collect to make your physical body. We're far deeper than you know, the, our genders and our ethnic makeup. There's something really common as a thread amongst mm. all of us. And yes, we inhabit and embody bodies that look a certain way and cultures that reflect values. And when we go deeper into who we are, we're far greater than the thing we do. Hmm. Matter of fact, what I'm learning from best in the world right now that are the tip of the era performers is that they are flipping the model that I need to do more to be more. I need to do extraordinary to be extraordinary. They're saying that ain't working. That's not the way it's supposed to work. They're flipping it and saying, I need to be more. I need to be more grounded, more present, more authentic, more creative, more me, more connected to my loved ones, my teammates. I need to be first and then let the doing flow from there. And that really addresses that identity issue. Be you and you are far greater than the thing you do.
1: Well, that is a great place to transition to our last question, which is we ask every guest for a favorite fuck up.
0: Okay. So here's, here is... For me, the greatest source of pain that I have is that early in my life, I didn't understand how to support, and I didn't understand what it took to get myself out of the way to help another person, and that person is my wife, and it's the most significant person in my life that has supported me through every facet of growth. And I stepped and got in the way of her dreams, and we did it together, you know, we we made decisions together, but I couldn't handle the direction that she was going. And she's beautiful and she's talented, she's smart, and I'm way over my skis in this relationship. (laughs) And I found myself in a position where I didn't know if I could handle her growth, her amazingness shining. And we made these weird compromises where, you know, I didn't really truly support her on her arc. Now imagine that, imagine the life that I'm in, the role that I inhabit in many people's lives and the scar tissue that I've created for uh, myself and the most important person in my life. And so I'm forever um, reminded internally, like the cost of when somebody sacrifices their trajectory for love. Mm. And so it's an incredible pain. At the same time, it's an incredible gift that she has given and we have sorted out together to be in a relationship. We're celebrating our 24th year anniversary uh, of marriage. Yeah. So, you know, that when, if I strip it all back, I've made so many mistakes in sport and so many mistakes, you know, in relationships with friends or whatever, but the most significant one is the compromises that I've asked my wife to make at Mm.
1: at an early age. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. It's beautiful and earnest and And I appreciate that.
0: Yeah. Maybe a little heavier than you wanted to hear. No, that's
1: all right. I mean, no, that question can go wherever it goes.
0: It's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Yeah.
0: Congratulations on what you're building here too.
1: Thank you. I feel like an imposter. So maybe that'll go away eventually, but.
0: (laughs) You know what? Welcome to the club.
1: (laughs) That's all we got for you today. Thank you, Jessamyn Molly, our producer. Thank you, Dr. Michael Gervais. Thank you guys for listening Please consider leaving a review if you liked the podcast. I know we're winding down on season two, but those reviews always help. If you'd like to reach out, I'm at clay underscore skipper at GQ.com. Otherwise, we'll talk next week, next Tuesday. See you then.